Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Amy Capalazzo, thank you for uh, agreeing to spend some time with us. Happy to be here. Your uh, time at Christie's, uh, about a dozen years, coincided with the rise of the art market. And I wanted to see if you could take a few minutes and talk about some of the moments where you thought the market changed. I mean, it certainly was a very different art world nearly 13 years ago when I joined Christie's. And it certainly was a smaller, more parochial group of collectors. And they were mostly coming from America and from Europe. And once in a while someone from Japan and once in a while someone from South America. Um, but it was, a, it was, a, it was a, essentially a much, much smaller group chasing a very specific set of objects, a very specific set of artists that were already believed to be solidly the, can, the canon. And we started to see the market expand a little by little. And I remember a particular season, I want to say it might have been like May 2003, where I've got it right, like 20 lots were bought by one buyer from Korea. Wow. And we were like, wow, you know, long live Korea, here they come. So there was one particular buyer from Korea who was in just buying up a storm, and that person was actually a dealer from Korea who was buying on behalf of a number of different clients. It did happen like that progressively every season all the time. You started to see the market expand more and more. Um, a very, I would say the most material move for the marketplace is was around about 2000, Four, but really, really in 2005, when works of art could be collateralized for easy loans, easy capital. And the loan to value was more generous than banks had ever done before. And they weren't looking long down their noses at, at works of art as a suspicious asset class, instead embracing it, seeing and understanding standing the liquidity within it. So the buyers felt more comfortable that if they spent a fair amount of money, it wouldn't be trapped in the work. Exactly. So it was very confidence building for the, to the marketplace that the American banks, let's say, at that time were willing to lend freely, usually around 50% loan to value, sometimes a little bit more leveraged, um, to collectors for works of art. I mean, the, the bigger, more interesting things to me are always the structure of the marketplace. So the market doesn't grow because you do these little historical corrections or yeah. you know, you put um, a Kusama in the night sale and it makes a huge price and Kusama used to be this crazy Japanese woman buried in day sales and now then she became this icon, this cult icon. That's all in place. So it, it's really much, much more about the structural aspects of how the marketplace works and how it's made. So liquidity is an important factor in the marketplace. So that kind of liquidity play that started to happen in the art market from the American banks in about 2005 was enormously impactful in the way collectors behaved and how much of their net worth they were probably willing to spend on art. That's what changed the market. But there's the other liquidity, which is the volume of work that's available. Like in the Judd sale, where there was a lot of fear when you guys first brought it, uh, uh, you know, that the foundation was going to release too much work. It seemed like that was almost the detonation, having a lot of work, a liquidity of work come on the market. Well, like a liquidity event, as we call as I used to call those kinds of sales. But they... Um, yeah, that was also from the estate. Everybody was excited about the provenance. I mean, you couldn't have done that from a dealer's back room with the Judd they had. You know, it had a very specific set of circumstances attached to it. Things that the Judd estate had kept since Judd had died. You know, that, that was a specific moment where it was ready for that. Other art, you could do that over and over again many times. I and mean, we've had other similar circumstances where you're going to test blockage a little bit and put a number of things out there and see how the market absorbs them. But once the market hit a sort of tipping point of becoming really big, and maybe this was around 2006 or perhaps 2007 maybe. Um, even when it contracted a bit in 2009, 2000, fall 2008, 2009, 
it really um, never got as small as it ever, you know, it never contracted back that far and it quickly got back to its old size and then even bigger again. But, but I just want to say, so these kinds of like, the idea that something could easily have blockage or be careful you'll flood the market, that, those are paradigms of a small marketplace. A big marketplace is the more there is, the more the market wants to a point. You just have to know exactly where that point is. So I always felt like we were particularly skilled at guessing where that point was and hitting it right. Well, that leads perfectly into uh, maybe the quote you're most famous for, which is um, referring to the auction houses. Big box retailer. Okay, so would you like me to qualify that and explain the big box quote now? Actually, I mean, I'll let you do that because I don't want to, but I I was going to say you were right. And and I'd like to talk about that, but qualify first and then we'll talk about how right you were. You know, it was very, very clear to me that the uh, marketplace was going to shift in favor, you know, this sort of cute boutique culture of art galleries and things. And, you know, that the marketplace was starting to shift and galvanize towards something that felt more um, established in brand and also had rep and warranty. Like, as things tick up in price point, people want a little more security in what they're doing. So the auction houses have a rep and warranty. If you go to a mid-level gallery, there really is no rep and warranty. You know, there's not really the same best practices of the industry. And that's one of the reasons I think Gagosian is successful is because there is the size and the understanding that when you buy something there, there's a good chance you will be able to get someone to buy it back. Yeah, I mean, well, I think the confidence people would have in the big brand is like, well, there must be flow there. If I bought this brand from that person, I should be able to resell it. The actual rep and warranty is something, as I'm referring to it, is something specific to the auction houses and their sort of business model. I, I understand, but Gagosian is the one uh, 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 you know, dealer that has a similar size structure to the auction houses in that sense of being a big box, of having right. lots of points out. Right. Exactly. Be, being open to many more pe- people, uh, in fact, yeah. welcoming of more, more, more people. Be, doing global marketing, things of that kind, of course, yeah. The only thing that you don't have that's similar to the uh, big box retailers that were huge for a while is that the prices don't go down. Right, in volume. Right, you know, at, uh, at Amazon, at, uh, uh, you know, uh, Sam's Club, at, at all of those uh, places, Best Buy, the prices go, go well, down. They do. Well, they do if you pump it out in volume. Yeah. Hearst, for example, the market corrected and went downward after his big sale, and I think sort of stabilized a bit, but there, you know, the, the, the amount of volume floated to market forced the prices down for a good period of time. Um, yeah, so the big box retail, it was very clear to me that like there was gonna be a little roll up. And it wouldn't necessarily mean, oh, these two medium-sized galleries that have been working next to each other in this, you know, same street for 20 years are gonna be partners now and like become, didn't, I didn't think it would be in that way. I just simply meant that there would be a, a shifting and a recalibration, and the very big were gonna survive and the, the middle would either have to get smaller or go, bi- or go with the bigger. And there would always be some, you know, this is the art market, so there's always some cool little funky gallery or startup or someone who's really focusing on the emerging end and trying something new, and thank God for that. Um, but it was just very, very clear to me in the structure that was what was gonna happen. Now I can tell you, you know, I can tell you that the, it happened. I think yeah. fa- it did happen. Now I feel that like all vulnerabilities of big businesses, you have to be very nimble and you have to be extremely creative and you have to be willing to innovate. And the more attached you are to tradition, the more difficult it is to innovate. So if this is the way things have always been done, that's really a hard attitude to retain when you're trying to move and be nimble and move forward into the 21st century. So that's, so I do feel like the big box paradigm now has shifted a little bit and the big box retailers you could say, stand to 
be challenged by those who are more nimble and quick. So, look, Circuit City went out of business. I mean, the, that that whole model of retailing had a a real peak, but it also we've moved past. Well, Amazon and you know Amazon is entirely taken over, and between Fresh Direct and Amazon and anything you can Google, you have everything brought to you in life. And well, so that that raises you know there's a lot of people struggling to make sense of the internet model in uh, the art market and. I think Christie's uh, is probably more advanced than anyone else, especially in combining that sense of it is a familiar institution, but you also now have this different access point. And you brought in a way of, of expanding that by bringing in this uh, you know, estate from uh, the Warhol Foundation so right. that you could give people something that was a, a brand name, but much a broader base, a different uh, you know, type of merchandise, for lack of a better term. Right. And a different way to access it and a way to like disseminate it and distributed differently, et cetera. I mean, the internet is not, I mean, buying art on the internet. People buy, you know, we all buy things on the internet now that we would have never dreamed we would buy on the internet 10 years ago. I mean, including food and, um, I don't know, uh, experiences and uh, hotel rooms we never see and uh, shoes we've never tried on our feet and things of this kind. So it's, it's only natural that eventually it becomes a vehicle it's just a vehicle of distribution. And don't forget, you can return things. I mean, there's still a, it's not a no deposit, no return situation, I think. And you're not only buying on the internet. You may be there physically one day, and the next day, it's just more convenient, or that's the kind of thing that, that, that you're buying. But I mean, I think the struggle with that model is finding the right amount of material and whether you can do it profitably. Well, you, need a, you definitely need a captive, you know, you, you, need, you couldn't innovate an, an e-com business without a big volume to start. So like the Warhol Foundation allowed us a really good um, platform to begin to do that. And it's worked and it's working and it's, it continues to work, thankfully. And that said, the, you know, loud and clear, e-commerce is still, e-commerce for art is still a play only below a certain price point. It's not really for expensive works of art. The internet is a great play for things under, say, 50K, 100K. It's going to completely consume and take over the world. Um, it's uh, going to be the mode of distribution for lower value objects, and it's going to save the auction houses just in the nick of time because the cost of processing lower value things is exorbitant for what the yield is. So if they just get on board, all of them, it would be better. I noticed Christie's this season has thinned their online offerings in the May sale, and I'm a little disappointed by that because I worked very hard to make sure that parts of the day sale went online for November. And I'm sorry they've sort of blipped out on that without don't, my- don't, don't go back. Yeah, don't without go my back. insistence that yeah. it happened, it sort of slipped a bit. But um, they'll get it because they don't have a choice. They have to. And, cost, and consumers will follow. Like it's not, it's not so radical, honestly. The art market makes quite a big deal about it, but it's not very radical. No, it's an extension of the big box idea of anyone who feels in any way intimidated uh, needs to develop a relationship. It's a lot easier to do that online totally. and, and work your way into to it, especially if it gives you, the, the auction house, the information about the buyer, which then closes the distance and you're sort of exactly. off and running. Exactly. I think there's also um, a sense in a very important, like, Major works of art, like canonical, iconic, important, art historical works of art, things of cultural value, long-term cultural value, will always be live events. Like buying those is special. And those are the kinds of events in our lives that should be live. Like, 
Yeah, no, and I and I think actually that's what's been great is the the auction room is now more open than it's ever been yeah. before. I know people who uh, used to go to the auctions all, all the time who uh, actually are some of your your clients who now only watch it on the internet yeah. because they can sit at home and uh, see what they want to see, feel right. like they're part of it. They've been there enough that they know what uh, right. uh, is going on, right. but they don't have to you know uh, wait half an hour to get in sure. and worry about getting to their dinner reservations right. afterwards. Of course, no, it's the, the ease the ease and comfort of being at home and watching on the internet makes makes more experiences more attractive at home than going out to enjoy them, of course. So, And uh, it makes you want to be there for the big event. You know, the, the live uh, generates more uh, excitement to say that you were there right. when other people also were able to witness it uh, online. Right. I mean, look, if you go to an ordinary sale at any auction house on a Tuesday afternoon at 2, sit in on a print sale, I mean, the phones are busy, but the room's empty. You know, everybody's home already anyway, so... It's definitely heading in that direction. And, and whether or not the auction needs to be a live event on that Tuesday at 2, or in fact it can be a two-hour, a two-week timed sale online, probably can go to that too. Well, what, uh, this is an arcane bit, but what about the crazy, you know, eBay-inspired habit of people waiting to the last second That's with an online sale? bidding. Christie's has a technology that we pioneered in that time I was there that it's called anti-sniper bidding, which means if you bid in the last minute, the lot automatically stays open for two more minutes. So it eliminates someone who has quick reflexes or a faster, you know, internet connection or Wi-Fi connection. So, you know, it means you get a fighting. You really get to think for two minutes if you want to bid again or you're out. So, so it just can, extend, extends play, as yes, it were. Yes, technology can fix that very easily and, you know, not advantage just people with quick reflexes. So, but so so why then the opposite uh, uh, trend towards private sales? They're not opposite. They're com They're. I mean, you don't private sell things for ten thousand dollars. You put them online and you sell them. You private sell things for a million dollars or ten million dollars or fifty million dollars. So it, they're just those are the two other channels of distribution that are destined to be profitable and to um, keep the auction houses in business. But but why just now? Why the private sales were always a part of the business? The you know private treaty sales have been going on for a while. Market wasn't big enough, and you were siphoning off the auctions to do that many private sales. Market is now big enough. So it's really just so about... So in all those years you were paying attention to our market and writing about it and sitting at every sale, 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005, the market, you could do some private sales, but you were starting to siphon off your auction. So it just had to get bigger, it had to get enough volume and traction of trading to allow there to be such a... And the auction houses had to make a decision to move into other people's territory and take business that dealers were doing. But you needed a certain volume and briskness of trading, speed of trading, in order to, for the auction houses to get good and nimble in private sales. And is there a um, ceiling for private sales? No. It's, again, just the size of the market, just as much as the market can bear. Yeah. And even though people like you... There's a bottom, there's a floor, but not a ceiling on private yeah. sales. Like, you wouldn't take on a private sale for $8,000. Like, it would be worth no one's time. To oh, I meant just in volume. I mean, you, we've oh, no, seen no. the rise to, I mean, to nearly a billion. Well, there's and... a volume in that you need to have diversified material. You need to be able to reach the most diversified clients. I mean, it's, it's a different business than you know, firing up the Wi-Fi and sending it out to the world. I mean, it's the actual, it is the exact opposite tactically. But um, the limit would only be in the, the property you have or your ability to place it. And so your new venture with Alan Schwartzman, is that an extension of the private selling? Is it something uh, totally different? So the new business, I mean, I think Alan is extremely excellent at what he does and singular in his talents. I really don't know anybody who builds collections as well as he does, including most museum curators. I mean, there are some at his caliber for sure, but I consider him sort of singular 
He's been a very, very dear friend for a long time and a client um, for years and years. We've done a lot of business together. And I think it felt very apparent to us that there wasn't really a collector, there wasn't a business in the art world that was collector-centric. So, you know, there's, you know, you could argue dealers are correctly artist-centric. They're mm -hmm. most focused on their artists and, the, and that's, their, that's their supply, basically, and that's important. And there isn't a particular entity or business that can look after a collector from acquisition, deaccession, um, sort of what I call the art family office of art agency partners, which is looking after, you know, the valuation of things, the um, kind of advice one would give about how this art, how this work of art can be dealt with and treated different ways through different kinds of trusts you could set up, et cetera. 1031 exchanges, all sorts of tax things that go on in that case. And also really give that kind of comprehensive advice of the life of a work of art in a collection or the life of the collection, how it could all happen. So the business really is collector-centric. I would say first and foremost, it's an advisory business. We help people and we give them great advice. We give them advice on how to build strong collections. We give them advice on what to buy. We give them advice on what to prune back in order to buy other things in their collection, to um, make their collections the best, most rigorous collections they can be for them as a mirror of what they want in their collection. Uh, uh, either art historically or financially, depending on where, which part of the dial they want to uh, uh, put it? I mean, look, you, you, there's somebody who would do it only financially, and that wouldn't be such an interesting collection, usually. And there would be someone who would do it only art historically, but it might not be as smart as it could be either in other ways. So, you know, it's, to know the market for a work of art is just another way to know it. So you can know about the work of art art historically and intellectually. I'm frankly not interested in not knowing that. Like, th that's an enormous passion for me, and that's important. But it, it's also, if you only know it art historically, but you don't know its market, then you really don't know the object fully. You could almost say it'd be hard to advise someone if you didn't know that other half, truly. So to know about the market for something is just another way of knowing it. And, and what are you hearing from the clients that you either have or you're talking to? What are their goals as collectors? Uh, you know, highly personal. They've got some idea they want to pursue through through art. Uh, a little bit like real estate. You know, you you've got uh, a nice house, but maybe the next house comes uh, along that you want to trade up to. I'm, 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 well, it depends. I mean, everybody has different goals and needs. People are sometimes at different stations at different times. So. You know, how your collection feels and looks at 80 is different than how you feel at 50. So, you know, there's a lot of generational matters in, a, in the way one collects as well. Like when you're the most acquisitive versus when you start to go, you know, I just actually want less but better. And I'm happy to live with these D Downsizing. Yeah, d these 20. Well, you could actually be upsizing in value and price point, but maybe in number. I mean, there's sort of a, inevitably there's a period where a collector gets to a point and goes, wow, you know, I feel like I've really like, bitten off a lot and I really need to look, I don't even know what I have anymore, you know, that sort of thing. So the feedback has been very good for us. There's lots of people that, you know, Alan, of course, has a very, is, has a wonderful business and has been very, very um, praised for being such a wonderful art advisor and we've had lots of new people coming to us and, you know, it's sort of an exciting time that way. Do, do they come to you because um, 
you know where the bodies are buried. I mean, if, if I want to buy something, I'm thinking one of the best people to go and ask where I can get the best of and a list of uh, different artworks, it's going to be you who've seen so many things go yeah, in both sure. directions. Yeah, I mean, there's, it's, um, okay, so possibly we, but there's, um, I, I'm, Look, it was very clear to me when I left. Typically, people in my position leave an auction house, and you can go back and look at the litany of people who've left Christie's and so there's other. And they go to be private dealers, and they have a fantastic three, four years of great things because they know where all the bodies are buried. Maybe they have a good five years. Then their data points start to fall off a little because some, you know, there's, you kind of have missed where things are, or you've forgotten, or things have traded hands without you knowing it. The truth is that wasn't interesting to me at all, even though I'm doing lots of private deals now that are very exciting and wonderful. What was interesting was building a different kind of business that doesn't exist in our industry. And building a business that really is incredibly collector-centric and, and long-term, that looks long on every single exchange. Um, and well, that's, it seems like the lifespan of a collector is different now from what it was when you, know, you bought a painting maybe every couple of years on your trip to New York and then gave it to your local museum right. at, and had a wing named after right. you and all. And we now see a lot of great collectors who are fairly deep on the provenance. Finite collection. I mean, look, it's a process it's a, it's, and it's a practice. Collecting is a practice. It's not an end game. It's not a, it doesn't, you know, there is no, there is no sort of like finish line you cross and go, yeah, I did it. I'm a collector. I look at my collection. You know, it's an ongoing, actually, it is the most incredibly interesting, intellectually life extending practice you can do. And if you're lucky enough to do it like with your spouse and you both enjoy it together, it'll probably keep, you know, keep your marriage happier for longer. So it's, you know, I think it's an amazing, incredible pursuit, and it's not finite. It doesn't end. There is no finish line you cross, and that's it. You should constantly be growing and changing and expanding. If you have unlimited resources, just keep buying. But typically, you'll need to prune and make but some decisions. But even if you do, I mean, there, there are people with unlimited resources who are selling as well as buying. Well, I mean, I mean it, it, having an attic full of everything isn't, isn't a collection. Yeah, isn't always desirable either. Right, exactly. That's true. Thank you for taking the time to do this. It's been a pleasure for me. I hope it has been for you, too. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 